If you are a fan of the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast and would like to help support the show, there's a great way that you can do that and start a new fashion trend. We have a new merchandise page on the website which features t-shirts and hoodies that are available for sale on Amazon. Just click on merchandise in the top menu and all of the links will be there or go directly to divebarrockstar.com slash merchandise. Get started early on your Christmas shopping at divebarrockstar.com. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. So welcome to episode 20. This is the 20th episode. I can't believe that we're that far in. I wasn't sure how long this thing was going to last. And uh, here we are on episode 20. So I, I, I'd just like to really give a sincere thank you for all the people that are listening and fans of the show and hit me up on Facebook and, you know, telling me how much they liked or, or disliked the episode. <laughs> Haven't had many dislikes. I will, I will, I will say that. And also just ask one favor. If you're listening on Apple, could you maybe take a second and click a five-star rating? That would really help out. Or if you have a little more time, to leave a quick review would be incredible. And if you're listening on Spotify, just click follow. That's all I need. And it really helps out the show. And and it really helped to bring the podcast to a wider audience and, and keep the show going, basically. Um, but I really appreciate everybody listening. It's really been fun. And thanks to all the guests that have been on the show. It's just been so cool. And I got a long list of awesome guests that, um, that we're going to be interviewing over the next, you know, however long I can keep the show going. And that brings me to today's guest, who is an incredible guitar player, really good friend of mine. And we're just going to kind of nerd out on this. Um, there's going to be a lot of names thrown at you. So many to, to where I just don't think I'm going to have the time to tell you who they all are. But thanks to Google, we can we can all go and check out people. And you'll recognize most of them, I'm sure. But, you know, I've talked before about the language of names on this show. We tend to speak to each other in names, us musicians, you know. My guest, though, has recorded and toured with an incredible list of artists and musicians like Hilary Duff, Mindy Abair, Michael McDonald, Lauren Hill, Sly Stone, Billy Ray Cyrus, Michael Bolton, Stephen Bishop, David Pack, Bobby Caldwell, and the list goes on and on and on. It's, it's really long and incredible. He's currently the musical director for saxophonist Warren Hill, and he also has two solo records out. One is called Identity, which you can find anywhere and on iTunes. And the other one is called Gitronica, which is only available on his website at jgore.com. So please enjoy my conversation with Jay Gore. Sporting the SM7B? Yes, I know. I it's my, uh, my podcast mic, man. That's the mic, man. Well, not only that, though, I've been singing on it, too, and it's phenomenal, really. I made a mistake. I did a, a voiceover for a book 
for a novel. I read a novel. Right, right, right. If you're going to listen to the book on tape, it, it's about a seven and seven and a quarter hour listen. Mm-hmm. But but to ret- to track it, it took me. 13, 14 hours. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not obviously in one sitting. I did it over the course of like two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the editing. And here's the mistake that I used a really nice large diaphragm condenser mic. Uh-huh. Right. Which was a huge mistake because it picks up every breath, every little everything. Yes. And, and so it was, it was like 30 hours of me going through and editing and, uh, and then putting yeah. like a, I put some sort of a gate on it and then had to set the threshold. Right. Cause it's, so I'm going SM7B next time for sure. Yeah. Didn't we do something years ago, like an original thing? Yeah. Well, you know, I was trying to remember, I don't even remember how I met you. I remember doing a gig at Cafe Cordial with you and Shane August. And- right. And then we were at Shane's place and we, we, we were co-writing a thing. Right. And you know, the thing is, I think back then I was, I was super focused and I was a jazz guy and I was a smooth jazz guy and we were kind of doing rock stuff and, and I was way behind on uh, you guys were, in fact, I think you were sort of self-titled studio nerds, you know, and like into sounds and mics and technique. And I was like, I, I had cakewalk on a, shitty computer uh-huh. that barely worked at that point you know so i was yeah. so behind and, I, and so i remember there being one session and then it just sort of never went anywhere after that but the gig kind of happened fun. i've done a, a million of those subjects a million of those uh projects with shane and and uh a lot of them never get finished you know some <laughs> of them have some of them have and some of them haven't and uh that's just the way it is in the big city you know yeah absolutely but that was 20 years ago like I, I it just, was. I just yeah. passed 20 years of being here and that was really probably within the first year of me getting here. That's probably how we met. We probably just met at Cordial one night. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere but... Cordial or Lavalie or the, or the Spud, something like that. We probably just met, you know, jamming together at some point. Cause I don't remember the actual moment of meeting you either. Right. Yeah. It's weird, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad we did. I am too, man. Thanks for doing this podcast with me. Yeah, man. I'm excited. Thanks for it's a great it's great. Man, I love it. Dive bar rock starts. <laughs> like as soon as I as soon as I saw it, I thought back to my twenties, you know, because that was me in my twenties, you know. I was yeah. a dive bar rock star in my twenties for sure, you know. <laughs> so you're actually zooming from Greece? Is that where you are? I was in Greece. I was in Greece until a couple of days ago. Now I'm in Bucharest. Oh wow, cool. Yeah. What are you doing out there? Is this music related? It's not. My wife is from here, and uh, we were able to go to Greece. They have um, my sister-in-law and my sis and my wife have um, they have a small property there in Athens that they use as an Airbnb property. So we went and stayed in their property. So nice. And we waited out that we were there. It was supposed to be for two weeks, and then it became three weeks. And because it was just so perfect, the weather was just. We're in October and it's still 90 <laughs> degrees during the day. And it's, right. you know, so there's no reason to come. So now it was time to come here to, to wow. a place where they have better Wi-Fi and it's just more modern and progress than it is in Athens. So now yep. we're here and uh, I'll go home when I need to, you know, right now there's no work. I had tons and tons of tours this year that got canceled yeah, and postponed. I mean, everything, man. I haven't been on a stage with another musician since March. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, well, that's not true. I've I've had two gigs just recently, but yeah, it was it was like six and a half months of nothing. You know, my main thing nowadays is Warren Hill. I'm his MD, and cool. He has a daughter named Olivia, who's an amazing pop singer, and I'm her MD as well. And there were tons of plans. And you know, Warren's got not only his own solo career, but he's got a jazz festival in Cancun and a jazz festival in Cabo. Oh, wow. And then he's going to be doing one in the Dominican Republic and I think one in Vegas. So I'm at all those festivals. And I'm also the uh, Adam Holly and myself are the main stage guitar players for Dave Causes Cruise. Oh, got you. Right. So all that stuff just went postponed. You know, yeah. I, I locked myself in my studio like everybody else did. Thank God I have a studio, I have a nice studio like you do mm-hmm. at home. And I've just been writing and writing and writing like crazy. And recording that's great and, you know the odd recording session here and there the remote yeah. stuff because i got i'm dialed in i got all the amps set up and all my guitars and all that so i can just really easily i got a nice pro tools rig and i can easily record whatever people need done you know i did a country thing before i came out here i did a bunch of mandolin stuff and that's cool gotta do what you gotta do right yeah it's funny because i play with keiko from you know maybe once a year or so i play with keiko you play with her on the cruises right Right. Yeah. And yeah. I played with her in Hawaii once for uh, My- Michael Paulo had a jazz festival out there and I was kind of the house guy. He brought me out there to be the house guy. I think wow. he uses locals out there now to do the house band thing. Yeah. I, you know, look, I slipped and fell into this, into this smooth jazz genre. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, I went straight from Hillary Duff who at the time was the, the greatest, biggest pop star in the world. I mean, right. the bands that were opening for us were bands like uh, Kelly Clarkson mm-hmm. and uh, and Maroon 5 was opening up for us and Jason Mraz was opening up for us, uh, Jessica Simpson. I mean, just people who are major stars now were opening up for us when we were on tour. Right. And then I came home and I did some stuff with this actor named Scott Grimes who's an amazing singer. And I've been working with him since the early nineties and off and on and off and on. We put the band back together when he's between TV shows and stuff like that. But I went straight to Mindy Abair called me and I knew Mindy because of Shane August. Oh, wow. Okay. We did a, we did a steak, a steak joint gig in the, in the mid nineties in Westwood, Shane and I duet Mm -hmm. and, and, and he knew Mindy and Mindy would come and play sax with us. Wow. And that's how I met Mindy. And then when Mindy got me in there, it was like, uh, you know, Andre Berry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Andre was, uh, Mindy's bass player. Right. And he right, and our, yeah. right. And he and our keyboard player, Rodney Lee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He and, uh, he and Rodney were doing lots of, they were doing, they were gigging with everybody in the genre. Right. Yeah. And I said, Hey, you know, after about three or four years with, pretty much only playing with Mindy and Mindy had enough work back then. Right. You know, that I was, it was fine. Just playing with her was fine. It was, it was good enough work. And, and I enjoyed it because Mindy's a very, um, she's very benevolent boss. You know, she's, Mm -hmm. she's very much, look, I need you to learn these songs and then completely play them the way you want to play them. Oh, wow. That's great. You know, make, make them Jay Gore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, so there'd be acoustic guitar stuff and I'd be like, I'm going to play this song on electric guitar. Cause it'll rock more. Cool. <laughs> you know, she's, just, <laughs> she's like, that, you know? Yeah. That's cool. I'll tell you, cause you know, playing with Keiko, you know, uh, <laughs> it's not it's, like you know, that. It's not like that. Yeah. No. 
<laughs> I said to Andre, you know, how are you getting all these gigs with all these other artists, you know? And he said, uh, I said, how do I get them to know me? And he just looked at me and grinned. He goes, don't worry, man. They're going to all know you. Everybody's going to know you. Trust me. They're going to know you. Just, just wait it out. Mm-hmm. So about a year later, we're playing a big show with like Dave Cause, Boney James, and Kenny Loggins. And it's at the Nokia uh-huh. downtown, the Nokia theater. And I'm downstairs underground in the, you know, where the dressing rooms are. Mm-hmm. And down the long hallway, Boney James starts walking towards me. And I'd never met Boney James in my life. Never, ever met the guy in my life. Mm-hmm. And he's walking towards me. And as he walks past me, he goes, hey, Jay, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and and then Andre's, Andre's words came back to me. If everybody will know you. Don't worry, yeah. they'll know you. And you're like, mission accomplished. And then the cause cruise is great because when you do the cause yeah. cruise, I get to play with all these artists. And then they're like, you know, a lot of them have their own bands, but at least, at least I'm the backup guy. At least, oh, I can call Jay. My regular guy can't do it. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Well, let's go back to Mindy for a second, because I, I also okay. think it's such a great um, fit because I kind of knew you like, you know, we got to know each other. We can't remember how as, as a rock dude, you know, so. Right. I am a rock dude. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but I also remember when Mindy came out, cause I was just Mr. Smooth jazz guy at that, uh, you know, cause I got the cable right. gig pretty much. I mean, I started playing with her six months after I got here. Then that lasted for a few months. And then I kind of didn't play with her for a year. And then after that, it was just Keiko, you know, for 12 years, you know, so. Such a uh, hard gig too, man. <laughs> yeah. She had a very challenging gig. Yes. But yeah. very, very, very cool. She's awesome. Absolutely. For. Absolutely. Yeah. But I do remember, I know I was also, I was also playing with uh, Greg Karukas at that point. And, right. and, and he was hosting this sort of weekly jam at this club in Hollywood. And I can't remember the name of it. It was some sort of Mediterranean or Moroccan theme or something. Anyways, but it was like the wave was hosting it was like um, sponsoring it. So Peter White would come out every week, you know, um, everybody would show up, Jonathan Butler. And we would just jam, you know, and it was cool. But Mindy came out a couple of times and I was like, Oh, who is this? And then after that, it was like, she just took over the airwaves. Like she became so massive, not because of our jam, but because of the label was really pushing her. But what struck me is that, she came with this pop thing that was right. very different. And like right. all of a sudden, and I just heard it and I'm a, I'm a pop guy, really, you know, right. as soon as I heard it, I was like, Whoa, this is, this is the future of smooth jazz, you know, right. and then, you know, sure enough over the next years, you know, like playing with different people, they'd send me their CDs to learn. I'm like, this sounds exactly like that. Mindy Abraham. Right. But she came to the smooth jazz and brought the pop thing with her because she had played with the Backstreet Boys. Is that right? Or she she had worked with um I think it was the Backstreet Boys, and she also worked with Aerosmith and uh Duran Duran. Right. So she brought that pop to the smooth jazz. Right. She's a rock and roller, man. She 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 knows her rock and roll. And yeah. you know, she grew up on the road. Her dad's a musician. Got you. I did not know. And she's from Florida and she grew up on the road. She was a little girl. Her dad was schlepping her all over the country in a van. Yeah. Gig to gig to gig with our drummer, wow. Jamie Tate's dad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, Jay Gore, bringing the rock to smooth jazz. You know, you're, you're also another right. guy who came to smooth jazz, but didn't really change who you were. And you, right. you know, you come with some, some gritty, edgy tones. You're playing a Strat, which is not a 
typical right. smooth jazz instrument, you know? And right. so I just, I just thought it was such a perfect fit, you know, for you to be working with Mindy. Did, the, did all those things work together well? I, I have to say that um, it wasn't what I had planned for my life. You know, when I was doing the Duff thing, I was like, this is great. Like I, I'm doing arenas now and yeah. uh, it's, and I'm doing proper bus tours and, and this is where I, this is where I, and I, and I was already, I mean, when I started playing with Duff, I was 34. Wow. You know, and I'd been a road dog, man, all mm-hmm. through my twenties, but I was, I was doing the road dog thing. Not at that, not at that level, as far as not at that budgetary level, you know what I mean? Not at right. World's biggest pop star level. Right. You were in a van probably. I was in a van. Right. It was very weird because I came off of this thing where, uh, I had a guitar tech and I had a guy, all I literally did was just, you know, be in the lobby when I was supposed to mm-hmm. and be on stage when I was supposed to. <laughs> and that was my day. You know what I mean? I, yeah. And then I went to this smooth jazz world where you actually work hard. You know what I mean? Nobody's yeah. doing anything. You're, you're backlining gear, which took me the longest time to get used to that backline thing because I'm, I'm like Mr. Boutique amp guy. I'm on the road mm-hmm. with Hillary Duff and I've got a Bradshaw rig and, wow. and a Bogner and a Rivera and, you know, a custom switching system and all this elaborate crap. Right. And then, I'm, and then I'm playing with Mini and I'm like, what do you mean? I can't, what do you mean? I can't get a Bogner. <laughs> in, 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 in Poughkeepsie, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? What, just, just uh, like you're ruining my whole show if I don't have a Bogner, I don't have the, you know a, a divided by thirteen or whatever kind of you right, know. Right. Give me a minute to kind of go. Listen, I gotta like, I gotta put that shit aside and mm-hmm. and get on board with what I need to do now to make this shit all happen. Right. And I, I got smart with it real quick. I realized, you know, what I needed to do. And the thing with Mindy was great because, like I said, she let me be me. And right. you know, because you've done the smooth jazz circuit and you know how those artists are. They're all very talented. They're all way more talented than they ever get credit for being. Yeah. They can all blow their asses off. They can all, they're all readers. They all, they all bebop the motherfucker out of everything. Right. And they, they and they play pop jazz music because it keeps them working and it keeps them making good money. And I don't think that's a sellout, man. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's what you got to do. And then when we have these yeah. great festivals and these after hours jams and everybody's up there playing giant steps and you're like, wow, <laughs> you know, Rick Braun is badass. Kirk yeah. Whalen is badass. You know, like these guys are legit jazz players, man. Yeah. They yeah. just don't want to be. They don't want to be freezing on a subway in New York City, man. You know what I mean? They, they yeah. want to have. They want to raise families and do nice things and have vacations. And there's nothing right. wrong with that, you know. Right. No. I, so, I, Mindy was great because Mindy, you know, look, I'm. Uh, I have a. Um, my personality is an acquired uh, taste. <laughs> you know, I I don't always say the most appropriate things at the most appropriate times, especially now in this really ridiculously politically correct correct world that we live in. Listen, I tell Steve Lukather jokes that make him cringe. I, I mean, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? And, and, and Mindy would just roll her eyes and goes, you know, and just, just shake her head. You know what I mean? She could, she right. could deal with that, you know, because right. she's, yeah. she's, she's awesome. Yeah. So it was a great fit. You know, I mean, I think your observation of that situation is, is pretty accurate. It was a great fit with her. I missed it. You know, she called me, uh, it was basically 
2004 to 2014. It was 10 years. And she called me and said, listen, um, I got to do this bone shakers thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it may work. It may not. And I may, I may have you back, but I, I got to team up with Randy right now, Randy Jacobs and do this bone shakers thing. Cause, and I knew why she did it. I mean, I, I, I'm not mad at her at all. You know I mean? I have a career because of her. Right. But the, you know, you see how the genre is. The genre is uh, it's losing it's losing radio stations weekly, right? And when you lose the radio station, whatever city that radio station's in, all the gigs go away with it, right? Exactly. So you might you might go from working with an artist, you might work with Peter White, and you might do 80, 80 gigs a month, eighty gigs a year. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when I saw the genre going from eighty. 80 or 85 gigs a year to the next year we had like 70 and the year after that we had like 58 gigs and the year after that it was like 43 gigs and the year after that it was 30 gigs and and you just see oh why aren't we doing that gig again oh the radio station changed format why aren't we doing that gig in louisville oh the radio station changed format right and so now you've got every one of these artists fighting tooth and nail to get on watercolors right because the wave is now not all over the world anymore for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two or three radio promo people that are in that genre who know everybody are like trying to tactfully plan everybody's releases out so they don't conflict with each other because we're all friends and we all love each other and it's our genre. And, right, you know, if one of us does well, we all do well, that whole thing. (laughs) And listen, man, I I mean, it's cool because uh, it's work. And the people are amazing. As you know, all the people, you know, you work with Keiko and you've got somebody who is very, very picky about the way her parts are played, but her music to me is more classical music than jazz music. Right. It's, it's, it's parts that interlock, you know, you, I might have 40 bars tacit and then I'll come in at bar 41 and play some 16th note run (laughs) <laughs> for one bar and that's my whole part in the whole song just yeah. that one bar you know what i mean and then you're just sitting there with your arms folded looking you know yeah i mean that's how she is <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah she definitely comes from that classical mindset absolutely. yeah and for, for me though it was it was fun because like yeah you just get you get into that you know how do i recreate this every night note for note and make it sound fun and fresh like it's the first time i've ever played it you know what i mean right. And, right. and and making her happy too is just part of the gig and she's she's i don't know i i have nothing but love for her you know after me too me too she asked me to play a part one time and uh it was a whole it was a whole melody she said listen i want you to play the second verse melody on this song and i said i said okay uh you know because when when i'm on the cause cruise i've got minimum seven shows to learn minimum right that's just on the main stage then i got other little things i'm doing in smaller lounges with other artists you know so i might have 12 13 14 shows that i gotta learn wow and i said okay keiko i'll do my best for you because i have a lot of other things to do but i'll try my best to learn this and she says well you know it's written out and her charts are, are written out but and i'm not a great reader you know look all full disclosure, I'm not that guy that can read fly shit. I'm not Tommy Tedesco, you know? Right. And uh, I'm not going to read her lines on the fly. Absolutely not. Right. And so uh, that day at Soundcheck, she says to me, it was about four days later, she says to me, so are you okay with second verse? I said, Keiko, 
I got the first eight bars for you. Because it was like a 16-bar verse. I right, said, keep right. going. That's the, I got the first eight. I got the first eight bars. I got them locked in perfectly. <laughs> and she goes, okay, that's great. That's great, Jay. Thank you so much. You play eight bars, and then I'll play the next eight bars. It'll be wonderful. Thank you. She was just so happy that's that cool. I just made some effort. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and she's got this really interesting, subtle way of just... I always say like, she wants it like this and, and, and she's going to, she's going to, she's going to be on your ass until it's that way. It's gonna, right. great. She's going to be nice about it, but she's right, right. going to stop pounding you until that's right. right you know, right. and right. Uh, it's a pretty cool way to be because it keeps, you know, tensions low in the band, but, right. but you get what you need out of people, you yeah, know, like, exactly. I forgot what we were talking about. Now, now I'm all reminiscing about a million Keiko stories. <laughs> right. Oh man. But yeah, yeah. But, the, but the genre and Oh, I know what I was to say, but also you have these package deals too, that have as rhythm section players, like for me, I, I started to see the work start to go down because now you have three artists going out with one band, one, one band. And Keiko has always been super loyal. She's always wanted right. a band. She has a band, right? Even she was starting to do the cruises, starting to do right. uh, stuff with Brian Simpson, and like, okay, well, I have to consider that as far as my future in this genre and being a bass right. player, you know. And well, that's, that must well, have been cutting into well, your work as well. Well, I was lucky because when that started happening, I was with Mindy, and mm-hmm. all of Mindy's music was guitar-driven music all the songs were based on a guitar riff. Got you. So any, and Mindy's also, you know, other than maybe Candy Dolfer, you know, she's, she's the top female artist, Right. You know, right. right. She insisted when we're doing these packages that, that she, she, I have to have, I have to have my guitar player, Got you it. know? And so I, I, I didn't, sometimes our drummer would be out of it or our keyboard player, you know, but I, I was always there and I got to tour with great people. I got to tour with freaking David Pack, man. Yeah. I mean, and we got to play all these, all these, all the Ambrosia stuff with him, man. Yeah. And it was like one of those things that August was talking about when he looks over and he sees Dennis DeYoung. He's like, my God, what am I doing here? You know? And it's like <laughs> that with David Pack. I'm on stage and I'm singing, that's how much I feel. Right. Yeah. You know? And, and I had to learn. And I don't sing like you in August at all, man. I can <laughs> handle some low harmonies, but I'm not a singer. And now I'm having to learn these intricate harmonies man these ambrosia harmonies you know yeah you know uh, biggest part of me sunrise mm. in your eyes realize you know yeah it goes like major to minor in the same chord i'm having to do half steps and yeah. i had to practice i would sit there and play all the lines on my guitar and sing along with my guitar playing you know uh-huh. to get the muscle memory because i don't have that like you guys do where you can just you know get that muscle memory in your voice you know but it was it was amazing. And again, looking over at looking over at David Pack every night, man, like standing yeah. right next to the guy. And- I did two shows with Ambrosia, subbing for Joe Puerta on bass. Uh, yeah, he, he had shoulder surgery and uh-huh. uh, couldn't play, but he was still there doing all the singing. So I didn't have to sing, but it was it was uh. intimidating because here's the bass player right in front of me all night, and and uh, but I don't know if you how much ambrosia you played with him but the the hit songs that david pack wrote and and sang are great they're they're challenging but they're reasonable right. the rest right. of the stuff is prog rock from right oh yeah. you know, know. like 
because he's a strong guitar player. Yeah. Mm. He doesn't get enough credit for his guitar playing. And the thing is, we didn't get deep with them. We did, you know, how much I feel, biggest part of me, you're the only woman. I think those were really like all we did. And then we did a a blues tune, uh, like a B.B. King tune, because he liked singing the blues, you know? Yeah, yeah. But he would give me the guitar solos. Wow. You know, it's like, dude, I'm I'm the sideman guy, you know? Like, I'm not... And he'd be like, no, no, I love how you play. You know, you can please take the solos, you know, take the solos. And he played great when we would jam at soundcheck and stuff. He's such a tasteful player and his tone was, he's one of those guys, he's like, doesn't have the greatest gear and doesn't care. And then he plugs into (laughs) some rental amp with some crappy $40 pawn shop overdrive pedal, you know? (laughs) And it's like, that tone is killing, man. I've got this like custom made buffered, Mogami craziness in front of me that cost me thousands of dollars and like he just plugs into some like nine volt battery operated thing and just like sounds <laughs> so good it's just it's in your hands you know yeah it's but... in the hands I'm really the older I get, one night at the big potato I got to play Mike Landau played and after hours we jammed and Mike played drums and I played on Mike's rig and mm-hmm. all night long I was drooling in his tone and then I plug into his guitar and his rig and his amp, and I'm playing. And I'm like, this thing sounds terrible. Uh, interesting. It's in, it's in his freaking hands. I stopped chasing tone then. I stopped chasing other people's tones. I stopped buying something because Eddie Van Halen used it. I stopped buying something because Lukather used it or whoever, Stevie Ray Vaughan, whoever it might be. I stopped buying shit because other guys were using it because right. it's all in your freaking hands, man. I think that's absolutely right. I've seen videos of Eddie playing backstage on an electric guitar acoustically. Mm-hmm. And you're just and you just kind of hear him with the you know this 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 like you know, and you and you're like that's the tone. It's yeah. not even going through an amp, and that's his like the brown sound is in his fucking fingers, man. Yeah, it ain't in yeah. the gear. You know, it ain't it ain't in the gear, man. Yeah, it's not. It's not. No. Yeah, I saw Neil Schoen at, at Nam one time trying out a, an acoustic guitar. And yeah. same thing that you're just saying, sure. just like there's, there it is, you know, there's the sound. If you study it, shredding you, on it too. Yeah. <laughs> if you study it, it makes sense. If you study it, okay. If you take, if you're going to play slide guitar, you're going to use a glass slide, you're going to use a brass slide, you're going to use a chrome slide. They all sound different. Yeah. Okay. Same guy playing all three slides, going to have different tone. Then you've got the angle of your pick attack. Are you hitting the note perfect, perfectly perpendicular to the string? Or are you kind of angling your pick a little bit? You know what I mean? All that yeah. stuff matters. Where are you resting your hand on the guitar? Are you back towards the bridge more? I knew a guy that fanned his fingers out and rested them on the pick guard so that he could pick between the neck pickup and the middle pickup on his strat when he played. Mm-hmm. And he had a very nice warm tone because of that. Right. And I said, that's an interesting style. He says, yeah, when I was younger, I really worked to do this because wow. he never, he didn't play with his hand free. He right. played with his, his fingers anchored like this and he would just mm-hmm. pick this way. Wow. And, and he had this beautiful warm tone on a strap, you know, just because he wasn't picking back over the bridge pickup like most of us do. Right. But all that shit matters. Yeah. All that shit, the Absolutely. acidity of your skin, all of it, it all matters. Absolutely. So, so speaking, of, speaking of Eddie Van Halen... Um, yeah. I'm kind of excited to talk to you about it anyways, because, you know, obviously he just died and I'm yeah. kind of just by chance have like three guitar players in a row uh, right. on, on the show. But, um, 
just listening to you play because I've you know I've spent the last two days just cyber stalking you. Obviously, and, you know a massive amount of Eddie Van Halen influence. He must have yeah. been important to you. You grew up in L.A., uh, yeah. sort of a hometown hero. Yeah, how much of an influence was he on on your plan? Oh, I mean, he he, you know, during the developmental years of my guitar playing, he was without a doubt the most influential person on on in my life. I was never one of those people to emulate him on a personal level, mm-hmm. but as a guitarist, look, I knew from a young age that I wasn't uh, going to be an innovative kind of guy like he is. You know, I mean. People don't people don't realize that aren't in the music business. I mean, w- the guy literally changed the way we do everything, you know. And I right. mean, we could say that about Les Paul with multi track recording and 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 solid body electric guitars. And mm-hmm. and it's funny when people want to compare Eddie to Hendrix. And and I I mean, I realize that Hendrix is this this god that we can never say anything against. And I never will because I agree with all all the all the Hendrix Hale Hendrix. Yes, yes. He right. didn't live long enough to leave as long of, as much of a mark as Eddie Van Halen did. He didn't live long enough to have the legacy and and the um the catalog that Eddie Van Halen has. Right. You know, a perfect example. Eddie Van Halen played the guitar solo on Beat It. Right. Okay. Nobody ever thinks about the reason for this. The reason for this was Michael Jackson saying to Quincy, "You're my producer." I want everybody buying my record. I don't want to be a black artist. I want to be an artist. Right. How do I, off the wall was wonderful, but white kids didn't buy it. How do we get, how do we get white people to buy my record? White people, the white kids, they love rock music. It's the eighties. They love, well, we got to get Eddie Van Halen. They right. got Steve Lukather there sitting right there in the freaking room with them. <laughs> you can't ask for a better guitar player. Right. And they're not, we call, call Eddie Van Halen. So what happens is you get, all I know is I went out and bought a Michael Jackson record. Right. That right. I probably wouldn't have bought. Maybe years later, when my musical um, palette was more developed, and I was like, oh, this Michael Jackson's a freaking genius, and Quincy's a genius, and Greg Gaines is a genius, and they're all geniuses, you know, and they're all making a record together. But yeah. when you think about it, it was the most intelligent thing ever because all the rock fans went out and bought a Michael Jackson record that they never would have bought. Yeah. And the funny story is, is that everybody knows the story about Eddie hanging up on Quincy because he didn't believe it was him and mm-hmm. then never getting paid for the session. Everybody knows this story. But I don't know if people realize this. With David Lee Roth, Van Halen never had an album go to number one. They wow. had number one singles, but they didn't have an album go to number one. So Van Halen releases 1984 and Thriller is released and Thriller goes number one and Van Halen's 1984 goes number two. Wow. And imagine if Eddie didn't play on Thriller, it may not have gone number one because it was a whole different demographic of people were buying Thriller, myself included. Right, right. Because Eddie was on it. And this pissed off David Lee Roth to no end. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) It was the last album with him, you know? Uh, Yeah. But he changed it all, man. We we can go through guitars are made differently now. Because mm-hmm. of him, amplifiers are made differently now because of him. There's a, there's an entire business for people building their, you know, companies like Warmoth. People weren't doing that. People went to the music store and they bought a guitar. That was it. Right. You, de- right. you dealt with that. I, I, was, I was a kid too, man. I had a, a Gibson style guitar and I wanted a Strat style guitar, but I liked the sound of the Gibson guitar and the way of the Strat. 
but it didn't cross my mind to just, oh, rip the pickup out of my Gibson and slap it in my fender. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? All those things, you know, lowering the voltage on the amp to get more overdrive on it. Now amps are right. made with extra gain stages in them to, to do what Eddie was doing. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, you know, all the techniques, you know, you can, everybody wants to talk about the, 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 the two hand tapping stuff. Yeah. That's all great. He never said he, had, he never said he invented it. People say he invented it. He never said he invented it. Right. Right. And he didn't invent it. There's jazz guys from like the thirties. They're finding videos. Now these jazz guys doing all that two handed tap stuff. But yeah. Eddie didn't know about them. Right, right. There was no YouTube in 1973, you know? Right. <laughs> so I can go on and on about Eddie, but yeah, he was my favorite. Even to the day he died, I was still the hugest fan. I went and saw him play all the time. I got to meet him and speak with him one time. And then there was another time I was in an elevator with him. And another time I was at Guitar Center when he came in and bought some keyboards. But there was the one time when I he saw me play at a gig I was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, sat there and watched me, and I went and talked to him afterwards. I actually put a post on my Facebook page last week. About yeah, it. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah it's a really cool story. Yeah. But yeah, I was. It was a, a heartbreaker for me. A heartbreaker for sure. I'm still. I'm still. I, you know, I'm just. Just today, I was playing my guitar, and I and I had tears in my eyes just thinking about. It. My God, I can't believe. Yeah, Ed's not here. Walk like breathing the same air as the rest of us anymore. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. So there are a lot of us out of work right now, uh, waiting to get back to playing shows and touring. And I know I've had to do whatever I can do to take my mind off the situation from time to time. And one of the ways to pass the time is to catch up on some books you've missed. But if you're like me and you don't love to read, (laughs) there's another way you can consume. Audible.com has thousands of titles to choose from, including audiobooks about music production, songwriting, the music business, music theory, instructional audiobooks, and biographies of your favorite musical heroes. But besides audiobooks, you can also listen to podcasts, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive audio originals you won't find anywhere else. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial if you visit audibletrial.com slash dive bar rockstar that's audibletrial.com slash dive bar rockstar and you can catch up on your audio reading i'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the dive bar rockstar podcast as a new podcast getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road uh, or off the road as the current case may be if you would like to support the podcast all you got to do is subscribe wherever you listen And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun. And once again, thank you for listening. You were playing the Sunset Strip at 13 years old. Yeah, I was. Said a lot. So it's, it's... it's so interesting to me as someone who moved here, to, you know, anytime I, I, I know and meet people that grew up here, but especially someone like you, who you were young, right in the midst of Eddie Van Halen's right. moment and Lukather and Landau and, you know, Michael Thompson, right. Jr. You know, all these guitar players, you got to sort of watch 
happen in, in front of your eyes? First of all, I have to say, I, I really admire guys like you and August and all the rest of you because of what you did. You picked up from where you came from and you came to LA because you wanted to be at the top level of everything because you knew inside of you, you could be with the top level of everything. And when you pick up, there's a lot of people that pick up and move to LA and they go right back home really soon because they realize, oh, I, I don't belong out here. These guys are next level out here. And I never thought of it that way because I was born and raised out here. Right. So that to me is just like, that's it. You know, I'm just lucky because I'm here in the center of it all. And I did, and I grew up in West LA. I grew up in a little neighborhood right near Century City, you know, in, wow. in West LA. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to school with some guys that we were all the same age and um, some mutual friends. I went to one school in the neighborhood and some of the other guys went to uh, 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 the school that was like, you know, six blocks away from my school, also in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And this one friend of mine said, Hey, I last year I went to this school and there's a guy there that plays guitar and drums and, and they're really great. And then and, and you should start a band with these guys. And we all met up and we started this band and the band was called frequency. Cool. And we wrote our own stuff, man. We were diligent. We were, we were in the eighth grade. Wow. We had, we were so focused. I still remember our schedule was Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday after school, straight from that bell ringing. We all hopped on our bikes and we went to the garage to rehearse. Yeah. And then it would be either Saturday or Sunday. It was a floating day on the weekend, dependent upon my little league schedule. <laughs> and uh, we would do that, man. We would get together. And the other guitar player, and these are guys I'm still really good friends with to this day. Wow, that's so cool. The other guitar player is a lawyer now. The, the drummer is, uh, um, he's an artist. You know, he, he, he makes art and he, he runs an art gallery. Mm. Um, the bass player passed away when we were 21. One of the singers is a film editor now. Jeez. And, I mean, I'm still friends with all these guys, but we wrote all of our own music. And we had to... Uh, we had to garage surf because we would be in a garage after school. And it was just a matter of the cops coming enough times for the parent of whoever's garage we were in to be like, that's it. You can't. <laughs> so we got to my dad's garage last and the cops would come to my dad's garage. You know, it would be that thing. Like they'd bang on the garage door and they'd open up the garage door and like the cloud of smoke would pour out like, like the Spicoli <laughs> van and, and fast times are going Cause you know, we were advanced for our age in every way, you know, right. Right. <laughs> That's Jeez. my meaning. And, wow. uh, they would, they would say, you got to stop and you got to stop. So one day they came by the house and my dad drove up into the driveway at like five in the afternoon when the cops were just leaving. And they said, you know, you're, these kids can't be doing this. They're, they're, they're breaking noise ordinances and the, and the neighbors are complaining. And he says, we're going to have to write you a ticket. And, and he said, my dad says, I don't care, man. They're out there practicing. What does it matter? He says, I'm going to have to write you a ticket every time I come over here. And he says, look, these kids are back here making music, man. They're not out there doing graffiti. They're not riding skateboards down the street, stealing purses from old ladies. Like they're doing something productive, man. You know, if you need to write me a, a $20 fine so that they can practice, I don't care. Write me the fine. You know, I don't care. My dad was cool like that. That's really cool. So we had a bunch of tunes and my, my drummer, who was a real go-getter, real type A personality. He says, uh, listen, man, we got to get a gig now. I was like, a gig? What are you talking <laughs> about a gig? Like, we would invite girls from school to come to the garage after and watch us rehearse. That was good enough for me, man. I was so popular, you know? Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, and he was like, no, no, we got to go play in a club. And there's the Troubadour. And I'm, I was like, the true, we can play at the Troubadour. Yeah. We get on our bikes, we ride up to the Troubadour, and we walk in the back door, and we go up the steps into the offices. And there's this dude in there named Mike. I'll never, I'm not going to say his last name, but I'll never forget this guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, he says, he goes, what do you kids want? We heard there's no age limit here. Yeah. Well, we want to play here. Oh, really? Yeah, we want to play here. Well, you got a demo tape? What's a demo tape? <laughs> He's like, you need to bring me a demo tape. Make me a, you need to go to a studio and you need to record your songs on a tape, at least four songs, and then bring it back to me. Oh, shit. How are we going to do that? Keep in mind, this is 1983. Wow. Okay, there's no, it's analog city, buddy. There's yeah. no, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So we go and we all beg our parents and half the guys in the band's parents said no. And my dad and my drummer's dad were like, yeah, go for it, man. Book the studio. We'll do it. We'll pay for it. Yeah. That's so we went to this recording studio in uh, Glendale and I remember walking in there and seeing the console and I sat down behind the console and I remember just really loudly saying to the guy, I want to know what every one of these knobs and every one of these buttons does. I want to know what all of them do. Before I leave here, right now, I want to know. So we, we get in the room and we, he's got the gobos up and we're playing live together. And we track four songs and we track them. We do three takes of each song. Mm-hmm. So we, we bang it out fast because we, we're, we're well rehearsed. You know, we, right. I think we banged out. We talk, between getting there, miking everything up. Oh, I broke a string in the middle of a take. And he goes, go ahead and change your string. And I said, I don't have a string. And he comes out and he goes, what do you mean you don't have a string? I said, I broke my string. I don't have a spare string. He goes, starts yelling at me. Dad, it's so unprofessional. How could you dare come to a recording studio and not bring spare strings for me? It's unprofessional. And I go, dude, I'm 13, bro. I'm 13, man. I've never been to a studio before. So he, he wow. gave me a string. So we were out of there in maybe three hours and did the you know did a, a mix and the whole thing. We got our demo now. We go back to the Troubadour. We're so excited. Here, dude, here's our demo tape. He puts it on. He's listening to it. He goes, this isn't you guys. Wow. We said, well, who do you think it is? He says, maybe this is your big brothers or something like that. This isn't you guys. We said, we swear this is us, man. This is us. He says, I don't know. He says, where do you guys rehearse? We said, we rehearse just a few blocks away from here in my garage. He says, when's your next rehearsal? We told him the next rehearsal was, he goes, I'm going to come down and see, I want to see your rehearsal. <laughs> What's at the, when you think about it now, it sounds, what club promoter would offer to come and actually watch your, he uh, came to the rehearsal, man. He showed up and he sat there and watched the rehearsal. He said, a- okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you guys a, I'm going to give you guys a Sunday night. And we said, no, 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 no. We want a Friday or Saturday. We want to open for rat or we want to open for great white, or we want to open for poison, or we want to open for wasp. Or we want to seriously, <laughs> man, we're like going because all these bands were the, all these bands we're still local bands, wow. you know? Mm-hmm. And he's like, first of all, you can't open for those bands because there are bands that have been playing at the club for a lot longer and have earned the right to be on a bill with them. Wow. We said, dude, we, we can't play on a Sunday night. We go to school on Monday. We can't get people there. If you put us on a Saturday night, we're going to pack this place. He said, I'll tell you <laughs> what I'll do. I'll give you a Sunday night on a three-day weekend when you don't have school on a Monday. Wow. So he gave us March 27th and man, we packed that place. And the deal was it was $4 to get in. People that came in without a ticket 
we got 85 cents of that $4. They gave us a stack of tickets. We got like a hefty bag full of tickets. And we went to the stationary place and we bought four rubber stamps with our logo. And we got all our siblings to to stamp frequency, frequency, frequency on all the tickets. (laughs) And then I had my sister. I have a sister who's a year younger than me. Mm-hmm. I said to her, I said, Heather, listen to me. You sit by the ticket booth and you count every one of those tickets that comes in. I don't want these guys screwing us at the end of the night on the money. Wow. I'm 13 years old and I'm shrewd like that. You know? That's amazing. Yeah. So we made money, bro. We made like almost 500 bucks that night. And the guy was so happy. He couldn't wait to book us again. We did it. We packed his club on a Sunday night. Wow. So that was my first gig ever, man. And I remember we rented full step Marshall full stacks from SIR and, and the whole thing, man. Yeah. As a kid from Broomfield, Colorado, that's just, I mean, I have so much the same story, you know, and in right. fact, we had a, like a, a recording studio move into our town when I was 14 and right. I discovered it. I like borrowed money from my grandparents. I'm like, I got to go in and do a tune and I played all the instruments or whatever. But I didn't have the troubadour to go to, you know, and and my dad was super supportive as well and let us rehearse in the house. You know, we got to play inside the house, so we didn't get the cops called as much, you know, but, um, but just when I hear a story about like that and just the access that you had. I'm so lucky, man. I really am. I'm so lucky. I got to see all these guys, Warren Demartini and George Lynch and all these guys when they were just playing at the Troub and playing it, playing it at Gazzari's and. Yeah. And I remember J- I remember seeing Jakey Lee play. He was in a band called Rough Cut. Wow. And because uh, I would go after school on the days when we weren't doing band practice, I would just drive up Doheny to, to the Troubadour. And I'd go in the back door at four in the afternoon and when they're loading in for soundcheck. And I would just sit there in the balcony, and watch all these bands that became super, super huge, famous bands. You know, Black and Blue and Poison and right. all those bands, Rat, all those guys. Wasp, and I remember seeing Striper and getting hit by with a, in the head with a Bible, and I got hit with raw meat at a Wasp concert, and wow. you know all that stuff, man. I was a kid, but they let us in. Yeah, it was great. And then when I got a little older in high school, somebody turned me on to uh, Steve Lukather. Yeah, you know I was real into George Lynch and Warren Demartini and Eddie Van Halen, like those were my guys. Mm-hmm. Somebody turned me on to Steve to Steve Lukather, and I didn't get Toto at first. They were a little too kind of. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, theatrical, maybe. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? They were just a little too, you know, like there, there was very, uh, very involved keyboard arrangements and some of that stuff. You know, when you listen to stuff like like musical theater, meaning yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It was kind of like like when you listen to stuff like Hydra, and I mean, I listen to it now, and I'm just in awe, man. Yeah, you know, I'm just in awe. Look, God, this stuff is amazing. And Steve Lukather, there's like a teenager playing on this record. You know, like the first yeah. Toto record. He's he's like 19. Oh man, and he's playing that. He's playing with such freaking, just such a maturity, man. Right, right. He plays on this song called Chloe, a really old Elton John song, and Jeff Beccaro plays drums on it, right. and he does the solo on it. And you can play it here. He's playing a 335. And and I thought for sure it was Larry Carlton. And then I read that, no, it's Steve Lukather. And I called him up and I'm like, what's up with Chloe, man? He goes, man, that was one of the first big sessions I did after high school. And he goes, I was trying to be like Larry. And I brought a 335 and a, and a volume pedal. And, the, and I said, how can you play? I mean, when I was 19, 20 years old, I could play anything but tastefully. 
<laughs> exactly right. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I was just, you know, I was listening to the wrong guys. He was listening to Carlton and Jay Graydon and, yeah. and Tommy Tedesco, and he was listening to those cats. And I'm, I was, I yeah. was listening to Warren D. Martini and George Lynch. And so I started listening to Steve Lukather and Landau, and you'd go to the Baked Potato and see him. Uh, charisma and and los lobotomies and all that stuff and yeah yeah you know and i became friends with those guys i'm sure you're friends with those guys too you know we're all local cats and we all become friends you know that's another thing that you don't get when you're from a small town is like right. everything seems so far away you know which is nothing i love about living in la anyways because you get here and then you start watching tv and you're like hey that's the pub in my neighborhood or that that's the right. you know and you're like right. oh all of a sudden you realize and now it seems like tv is made for you Cause it's all right. about you. There's so right. many things are LA or New York, you know? Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, having come from all that, like what are your thoughts about the LA LA as a music town in general? Now? Right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like that anymore to me. It's definitely not. It's, it's not a music town anymore. Um, because music isn't really in need of a music town anymore. Yeah. Well, that's it's, true. It's just not. Um, so for me, what it was, was I, grew up in LA. And so if I grew up, if I grew up in some small town, I mm -hmm. probably would have had to be as good as, as the best guitar player in my high school. Right. You know, uh, but I grew up in LA. So I, I got to go see Larry Carlton play right in front of me and, and, and Robin Ford and Lukather and Landau and Carl Verheyen. And like, I used to, I, used to, I could see these guys a foot in front of me. Right. And that was what I had to get. I had to get there. I had to get at that level. At right. least try. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. if I want to be able to work, you know, I was a band guy my most of my life until my early, you know, from 13 until about 21, I was a band guy. I wasn't thinking about being a session player. I wasn't thinking about being a sideman. I was, right. was going to be a rock star, man. You know what I mean? I was, I was going to be Warren Martini. You know, I was... I was really into, I was really into living color and I was playing on the sunset strip and I was 18, 19 years old and I had a black lead singer in my band and, and we were playing like funky metal stuff, you know, kind of like what extreme is like. And yeah. And, and right. that band living color mm -hmm. and nobody yeah. got it. Nobody got it, you know, and that's okay. You know, but I got a gig. There's a band called Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds. They were like a soft rock band from the seventies. We call it yacht rock now. Right. Yeah. 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 And they had two big hit songs. One was called Fallen in Love. Baby, baby, falling in oh, love. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Falling in love. Right. And the other one was Don't Pull Your Love Out on Me. Oh, yeah. Don't Pull Your Love Out on Me. That's the one. Yes. Yeah, so the lead singer and guitar player, his name's Dan Hamilton, and it's a really convoluted story, but he's kind of like an uncle to me that isn't related to me. Basically, his wife and sister-in-law introduced my mom to my dad in high school oh wow so he's kind of like a godfather if you will or he's an he, he was an avuncular figure in my life mm -hmm. and he was when i was playing at the troubadour when i was 13 and he was there at the gig and he's the one who told my parents you should encourage this he's he's got that air quotes it thing mm -hmm. you should he's got the potential so he was hiring me to do some local stuff around town when i turned 21 they brought me on the road and I went to Vegas with them and I had a ball. It was my first time like being on the road as a side guy. Mm -hmm. And I was young, I was 21 and everybody in the band is 
is like 50. <laughs> right. You know, and like over it and like, oh, we got one more set to do, you know, like those guys. I'm like, yeah. when are we playing again? You know what I mean? <laughs> and they wanted, they wanted me to be a shreddy guy. They, they're like, you know, no, like take solos and all the songs and play whatever you want, man. We want that young gun shreddy thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, man. So at the end of the week, he came up to me and he handed me an envelope that had eight crisp $100 bills in it. And I think we did a four-nighter. I think it was 200 a night. I never asked about the money. To me, I didn't care. I was right. like, I was out of my mom's house and I was playing my guitar in Las fucking Vegas, man. <laughs> and I was, and I was, you know, hanging out with cocktail waitresses till all hours of the night. I was having a great time, you know? So I, I thought to myself, I didn't have to worry about a bass player who isn't good enough to play the music I write. I didn't have to worry about a drummer that wants to co-write the songs with me because he can play two bar chords on his beat up acoustic guitar. <laughs> I don't have to worry about a lead singer who'd rather, who's, who's more concerned about getting blowjobs than finishing his lyrics. Right. I don't have to worry about all these managers at all these nightclubs that don't pay me what they say they're going to pay me at the end of the night. Uh, I don't have to worry about any of this crap anymore. I just show up and play my guitar and get paid. Huh? Yeah. What do you know about that? Yeah, man. So it really changed my perspective a lot, man. It yeah. kind of took the artist hat off and it put the sideman hat on. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was the right decision or not. I mean, yeah. I've had a good life. I've had a good career. You know, the whole scene moved to Seattle not long after that anyways, right around that hey. time, you know? It literally just picked up. I mean, you weren't here yet, right? At that time. No, no, no. No, the way it used to work was you put a band together and you go and you play at, at the Roxy, the Whiskey, or Gazari's, or here's a place called Raji's. There's some other, there was Madame Wong's East and West, and there's the Troubadour. And you build, and you, you know, we had this magazine called Rock City News and BAM. Oh, wow. And you put your, and you put ads in those magazines for your show and you had to take the sexiest coolest looking picture to put in those magazines otherwise the girls weren't going to come and the dudes don't come to your show if the girls aren't coming to your show right so you had your hair really big you had to have the, sh the killing clothes you had to have a girlfriend that had a good job so she could buy you all this shit that you needed <laughs> you know seriously i'm not even joking that's how it was in those days yeah. you know all, all the guys in bands had girlfriends that had normal jobs and supported our musical habit if you will and, and bought our hairstylings and our and our cool clothing that we had to buy on melrose from new york new york from the guy cosmo that was there and we all went yeah. everybody shopped at the same stores and bought the same shit and you'd find a new way to rip it differently oh i'm gonna do like that you know you know <laughs> but you would poster sunset all the way from where the whiskey is to doheny every light post would literally just be postered with flyers with the tabs you pull off and you bring the tab and you get discount door and, and the street would be full of people. It was such a scene, man. It was like Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It was just every night, just people in the street dressed with the hair and in the full regalia, man. Yeah. Full 80s hairband regalia, everybody, guys and girls. The rainbow, people pouring out of the rainbow every night. And it was literally just what it, what it seemed like. It was that way. Like when you look at a rat video or, you know, it, that's, what it's, right. that's what it was like. And uh, then all of a sudden, just boom. You'd start your band, you'd get a following, you'd move to a later time slot, you'd get a Friday night, then you'd get a Saturday night, then you'd get to play at Gazari's because it was the biggest place. And when you'd sell out Gazari's on a Saturday night, and sometimes you'd get two shows on a Saturday night because you'd sell it out and they'd clear the house and bring it in. Then the labels were coming to see you. Right. 
you know, and you might get a demo deal. They might give you five grand to go make a demo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And now none of that happens. Now you buy a laptop and you open up garage garage band and you have a palette of drum beats and you click on them until you hear one you like, and then you grab it and you drop it on a timeline. And then you go to the bass. A monkey can make music now. Right. It's changed the business, you know. Um, yeah. It's yeah, it's I'm a, not telling I'm not telling you anything you don't know, you know. Right. But well, I mean, but before that though, it seems to me like the pay to play started to happen as well. Which to me, like now when you go down to the whiskey and you want to get a gig, right? you know, it's completely up to you. There's no scene. Like you're saying, there were people right. everywhere. So all you had no, to do is right. get their attention. Now there's no, there's no scene. There's nobody there. And they used to book like bands. So mm -hmm. they would book four or five bands a night. And when they booked you, you might have to wait. Okay, call me next week. I don't have a night that's right for your band yet. Yeah. Because yes. they want they want you at the eight o'clock slot to bring in your forty or fifty people, and right. then they're going to stay for the next band and the next band. They want if they like you, they're going to like. They wanted not bands that were identical to each other, but at least in the same stratosphere of one another. You know what I mean? They right. don't care about any of that anymore. No. But the pay to play thing had to happen, um, because what happened was because I was in it before it was pay to play, and I was in it after it was pay to play, and mm -hmm. pay to play benefited me. Interesting. Because it had to happen because by the late 80s, by 86-ish, every band from every place in this country was loading up their van and leaving their small town and moving to LA to become big rock stars. And then they booked bands. They, they booked a show at the Troubadour or the Whiskey and three people came. Uh, and, the clubs, and the clubs started losing money like crazy. So they had to. So really what the pay to play, I don't know how it works now. Then the way they did it was you had to buy 50 tickets at say five bucks a pop. So when you book the show, they'll front you the 50 tickets and at soundcheck, you have to give them $250 and that's how it worked. So what I said, because I was a local guy and I had no problem with a following because everybody in my band were, were native guys and you know we'd been our whole lives. I said to the guy, I'll tell you what, give me 50 tickets right? I'll sell them for five bucks a pop. And then I'm going to come back and I want you to give me unlimited tickets for free. And they were fine with that. Right. So literally four or five, maybe a week later, I'd come back and I'd have the 250 for them. And I, and I'd bring an empty hefty bag with me, a big 40 gallon laundry, you know, you know, garden bag. And I'd say, fill it up. And he'd they'd fill it up with tickets and we would either give them away or sell them. Right. And we'd make tons of money. We would make very good profit. Wow. We're selling them to our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, our guys that were, we're selling them every, every guy in the band is selling 45, 40 tickets easily. Right. Wow. So it's, it's and that's all money in our pocket because mm -hmm. yeah. I've given them the two fifty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's great for established situations like yours, right. but right. now it's to the point where it's like, no. now you, you sell your, you know, 40, maybe you get 29 people to come down. They stay for right. the set and then they leave. Right. You know, because there's not they're not there for a night of music they're there no. because well my friend gave me a ticket or you know right I mean? right and, and the clubs don't seem to care that that's never going to change unless you start sort of putting some more promotion back into it and it also means that the bands that get to play are the ones that can bring people not the ones that are worthy of being seen 
right. their garage. You know, right. there used to be some sort of filter, like you know, the troubadour dude made you get a demo, and it had to be a certain quality. Right. You know, now it's. I, don't I mean, not, I mean, you know, not to not to not to keep bringing up Steve Lukather, but he yeah. he said, you know, it used to be a lot of people had to like you before you could make an album. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. Your your girlfriend, your right. Your girlfriends had to like you, and then you had to book a gig, and the people that came to you, the people at the club had to like you. The owner of the club, the booker at the club had to like you. Then you had to have enough people for a following to come like you, so that the club would book you again. Right. And and then somebody from the record company would have to come out, and they would have to like you, and then they'd have to go tell their bosses at the label, and the boss at the label would have to like you enough mm. to go to their boss to give you money to go to a studio. A whole bunch of people had to like you before you could even make a record. Now, right. Anybody can make a record. Anybody can make a record. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I know it. So it's devalued music. It's completely devalued music. Right. Yeah. And we all kind of are feeling the, uh, we all suffer because of it, you know? And, yeah. and, you know. I mean, you went to, you're a Berkeley guy. I'm an MI guy. You know, I mean, we, we, we put in the work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And all that being said, you know, this show is kind of a lot about, loving Los Angeles, you know, and that's like from a band from put together a band and come here and try to make it standpoint. That's it's right. not, it's that's dead, but that doesn't oh, mean right. there's still not a lot of opportunity here for musicians and, and for me, you know, my wife moved to LA. So she's a lawyer and a psychologist. Mm-hmm. She moves to LA and she's just like, I can't believe how open to ideas people are here. You have creative ideas and everybody's yeah. open. They don't look at you like you're a three-headed monster. Like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like everybody's so open and create and creative and they're open to yoga and they're open to healing things and positivity and good energy and all this hippie kind of stuff, you know? And I'm like, yeah, they are. I mean, you, you have that and you have the type A, you know, business people that are, are, are you, you have it all there, you know? Yeah. But I mean, look, it's my city. I grew up there. I was born there. Yeah. I, I was I was actually born in Hollywood. That's yeah, it. but I yeah. love it, man. I'll never live anywhere else. I really can't see myself living anywhere else full time. Well, you've made an amazing career. You know, Thank you. And in, in a diverse career, which I really think is pretty cool. I mean, you you do a lot of smooth jazz, mostly smooth jazz now, yeah. I guess. But that doesn't mean you yeah. can't work your way awesomely through a Journey tribute band or whatever. You know, you like yeah. you have. I love it. Super I love diverse it. player, and 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 you and it's reflected in your resume and your bio and. You know, actually, before we go, we should talk about your solo stuff. Okay, cool. The first album is called Identity. I did that album because after playing with Dave Cause, he, uh, <laughs> we went to this burger joint in LA that you know about, but for those people other, elsewhere, there's mm-hmm. a very iconic burger joint in LA called the Apple Pan. Mm-hmm. And uh, we go to the Apple Pan and we're eating and he looks at me and he says, uh, how come you don't have an album? He says, everybody on the cruise knows you and you walk up and down the hallways and everybody knows Jay Gore. He says, but you don't have an album. (laughs) I said, I've never done an album, a Jay Gore album, because I don't know what kind of album I would do. I would feel that I need to do a smooth jazz album because that's my fan base at this point in my life. Right. But I'm a rock and roller and I love playing acoustic guitar and he said, do it all, man. <laughs> People want a Jay Gore album. So I did Identity. And that's that's yeah. why it's Identity. And it's got, it's got all the weird tuning, Michael Hedges, acoustic guitar kind of stuff. I did a couple tunes. 
Peter White and I co-wrote a song that was a single went to number six on the charts called BFF. Yeah. How did that come about? I I was thinking in a business way. I was thinking uh, if I want to get on the radio, it would be cool if I had a single that had a big name on it. And Peter and I are really, really close because we did a package with Mindy and he and I just bonded because he, you know, Peter's a big rock and roll guy. No. You can't stump, you can't stump Peter on rock tunes at all. You can call and you can call out anything from Emerson, like in Palmer to April wine. To, he knows it all. He'll just sit there and play all that. He knows it all. And he's got such an ear. If he's ever heard a song, he can just ear his way through it. It's, it's incredible. Wow. So I said, Hey man, I'm going to do my first record and I would love it. I'd be so honored if you would either produce my record for me or, or produce one song or co-write or, or, do a guest spot. Just how, it, I want you involved in some way, however, whatever you're comfortable with. He goes, I would love to write a song with you. He goes, I don't have time to produce it or engineer it or anything like that, but I'll track my guitars. We'll write. So we wrote, I wrote the main riff of the tune and the melody and mm-hmm. he wrote the whole bridge section and he did the arranging of like, he taught me this great thing. He says, you know, in pop song, he goes, you've written a pop song here called a smooth jazz song, but it's in the key of D and it starts on a D chord. And then the chorus, we have a pre-chorus, and then we go to the next chorus, which also starts on a D chorus, on a D chord. To make it pop, there's a rule. The pre-chorus cannot be four divisible bars. It cannot be a four-bar pre-chorus. It cannot be an eight-bar pre-chorus or 12-bar or 16-bar. It has to be five bars or seven bars or six. He goes, listen to Jump by Van Halen. He actually told me this. Listen to Jump by Van Halen. Can't you see me standing here? I got my back against the wreck. It's like a nine or 10 bar pre-chorus because it's the same progression in the chorus as in the verse. Gotcha. So in order for that chorus to pop, the the pre-chorus has to be not divisible by four. Whoa, trippy. Never thought about that. I'm going to go back and listen to songs now. Yeah. So (laughs) I did that. We we added an extra bar in there. He did very cleverly and we wrote the song and and, and the, the radio guys loved it. And that's how that happened. And I wrote with this guy, Ernie Halter, a beautiful song. He's a great singer. Yeah, I know. Ernie. And I, That's great. And I wrote with Connie Lim, who's an amazing singer. And I wrote with Shane August. That. So there's a couple of vocal tunes on there. Then for the next album, I decided I want to do an artist album, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's Gatronica. And I thought, what do I want? I, I love when I come to Europe and I hear that stuff they're playing at the beaches, that real kind of electronic, like kind of mid-tempo enigma, massive attack, right? Thievery right. Corporation kind of stuff mm-hmm. with electric overdrive guitar on it, but not shreddy, not 
not going into Satriani land. Right, right. You know, staying more in Gilmore, Jeff Beck land. Right. And so I spent a lot of time really, if you listen to Gitronica, man, the guitar tone, I spent a lot of time really cultivating that tone. I, heard, I had it in my head. I actually had to have a guitar kind of specifically made for it. Mm. A Tyler, you know, I use uh, James Tyler guitars mm-hmm. and, and Ernie Ball guitars, but mostly. You know, Jim Tyler is a very good friend of mine and, and an incredible guitar maker. And I talked to him. I said, look, this is what I want to do. And I want a guitar that's just, you know, a humbucker and a single coil neck and nothing in the middle. And, and we designed the guitar and I wanted a different kind of neck shape. And, and we did all that. And then it was a matter of taking all my amplifiers out of my storage unit and <laughs> plugging them in and tweaking the tones to see, and recording things to wow. see how they sounded recording. And finally, I came up with the right gumbo, right. you know, yeah, and, yeah. I, and, and I used it for every song. Every song is the same amp and the same guitar. Oh, on that album and that's it i want it because i wanted it like a, 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 i wanted to have a sound for the first time in my life not just be studio guy yeah you know giving you know showing up with card because i did i did that whole thing man where, where i had the cartage guy lon cohen and and a roadie that carried yeah. all my shit and i had all the bradshaw gear and, and trunks full of you know i'd show up with 15 guitars and 15 amplifiers and bradshaw all that shit man wow and you're just the guy they want you know what i mean you're like and it was what's sad because I didn't get to be a Luke or a Landau because when I showed up to sessions, that's what they wanted. Give us like a like the Landau thing here, you know? Right. Give us a Luke or thing here. And I don't go, hey man, I'm Jay Gore. I'm like, I'm honored that you think I can even try to do that shit for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know what I mean? Yeah. So Getronica is my baby, man. I mean, I love identity. I made identity in like two and a half months. Getronica took me a year. Wow to write it and get the tones the way I wanted it. And, and I don't get anal about shit. I don't sit there and retrack over and over and over again. You know, I'm not that guy, you know? Right. I want, I want, I want the energy of it being a, a fresh performance. Right. Right. And, and there's an improvised section in all of the songs, even though they're structured songs, there's definitely a guitar solo, if you will, in the songs mm-hmm. that gets away from the melodic part. Right, right, right. But I'm really proud of it, and uh, I really want to work that. I really want to get gigs doing that as an artist, doing my Gatronica thing. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. So if people want to get it, it's, it's only available at your website. It's on jgore.com. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Or getronica.net. Yeah. Either one. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. It's really been awesome talking to you, man. Thank you, man. I re- I appreciate, I appreciate you calling me for this, man. I really do. 
Well, you know, I've, I've, I've silently looked up to you through, throughout the years, you know, and I, so I can, I hope we get to play together, you know, in the future. On Absolutely, man. I, I have, I have the highest respect for you, man. I really do. I really do. I think you're a very talented cat and a, and a nice guy. I definitely would love to do something in the future. I have to say before we, before we go, there's two things I need to plug. Absolutely. Uh, they're not available yet. I'm working on two things right now. One is I'm working on a book, oh, uh, cool. an autobiography where I will tell all these stories and, and I'll uh-huh. get into, I'm going to meet with a lawyer and find out like, do I have to change people's names? All that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. I got dirt on, you know, dirt on people that they probably don't want to hear about it. <laughs> and then the other thing is I'm in the middle of putting together you know, like a whole coaching thing, like a video coaching. And it's going to do everything from like how to audition properly, how to put your gear together for, for specific gigs, proper etiquette on a tour bus, proper etiquette in an airport, proper etiquette when you're, you know, how to be the guy, you don't have to be the greatest guitar player in the world, but you have to be somebody that people want to live with on a bus for six months. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, we talk about a lot on this show. (laughs) <laughs> right. It, this, this is going to be just, it's listen, there are a million guys on, on YouTube, all teaching you how to play eruption better than I can. So, um, I'm not going in there. I'm not going there, but I have, you know, look, I've played with Michael Bolton. I've played with Michael McDonald. They're two very different Michaels. <laughs> They're two very different Michaels. I've played with Lauren Hill and I've played with Warren Hill. They're two very different Hills. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, yeah. You know what I mean? I played with Eddie Money. I played with, I mean, so many people I've played with, but every gig is different. And how do you walk into these gigs? How do you get these gigs? How do you keep these gigs? The most important thing. Yeah. All that stuff. How does it work? How does a tour manager work? How does getting up every day and going to the next town, how does all that work? Right. All, I'm going to be doing seminar, you know, coaching courses on all of these things. Well, that's amazing. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, when you get when you get both of these things done, come back on my podcast and let's talk all about them specifically. And and uh, awesome. And uh, and I'd make love it to, happen because that's it's really good to see you and talk to you, man. Really absolutely. good. Absolutely. Even if it is, you know, we're yeah. ten thousand miles apart or some some crazy shit. Something like that. <laughs> um, when I get back in town, I'll hit you up. We'll go grab some lunch. That sounds perfect. Oh man, I love hearing that firsthand, you know, story about what LA was like in the eighties. Cause, uh, I just was so obsessed as a kid and only could watch it on TV. You know, <laughs> I also love when he said he had fallen into smooth jazz and it wasn't what he had planned for his life. Because I think that's something that a lot of side men and women have in common. Usually we don't start out to be hired guns, you know, but the opportunities present themselves and and we jump and we want to make a living playing music. So let's just do it. But a lot of times that means kind of leaving your dreams behind. You know, I wanted, I wanted to be a lead singer and a songwriter, you know, a rock star when I first started, but the opportunity to just play my bass and get paid kept coming up. And that's what people wanted from me at the time. So eventually I just started saying yes. And that decision has provided me with, you know, a crazy awesome life. Once I gave in to that notion that I'm supposed to be a bass player, it led me to everything else I wanted. Now I have my own records. I've written hundreds of songs, and some of them have been on TV and in films and have been sung by other artists. I've toured with my own band, and I've been able to play with some of my heroes, you know, all because I just followed that path that was right in front of me. And I didn't, 
I didn't resist or I stopped resisting. I resisted for a minute, but <laughs> I stopped resisting and like the whole world kind of opened up, you know. Uh, could I have been the next Elton John? I- I'll never know. But when I look back at my life, I'm, I'm definitely in awe of everything that I've been able to do. And sometimes those things that you wanted, you know, they show up. They just don't look like you thought they were going to look. So I've been able to use my bass playing and those opportunities to steer my life in a direction of getting all those things, you know, one way or another. So sometimes it's good to just, you know, follow that path that's kind of been laid out in front of you and uh, don't resist and work hard and stay focused. I also thought it was cool that he brought up the story of leaving Mindy Abair's gig, because we rarely talk about how gigs end on this show. It's all about how did people get the gigs? You know, when Min- Mindy called him and wanted to go in a different direction, and that's not a rare thing. You know, some artists do it often, and at least she called him, because sometimes you just won't even get a call, and you'll see a tour on an artist website, and you just won't be on it. <laughs> I've had it happen. This business is brutal sometimes, and it can change at any time, so you kind of have to be ready and aware of that. And it's a tricky thing as a sideman, too, because I want to provide as creative a space for the artist that I'm working for as I possibly can. And sometimes that might mean I'm no longer the right guy for the gig, you know? So it's devastating every time it happens, but at the same time, it's sort of part of my job to accept that and to be cool with it. It's pretty common that, you know, you'll be used in the band, you'll be in the band, but you won't be used on the record or you'll do a record with somebody and they have their own band. So you're not going to go out with that. Sometimes it can be financial and that's always a drag. Um, but sometimes it's just creativity and where that artist wants to take the next record or wants to take the next look of the band or, or you name it. It's a, it's a tricky thing, but it, the best thing I think is to not take things personal and uh, make sure you watch your back and you have a long list of people that you can call and clients that you work for so you can keep your career moving forward. Cartage is a term that I had to learn when I got here. It's basically a local roadie. Some guys will come and get your stuff and take it to your gig, set it up, and then do it all in reverse when you're done. And other companies will store your gear for you and just show up wherever you tell them. And it kind of depends on what, how much money you want to spend. And it's a back saver, absolutely, if you can afford it. Backlining gear basically means renting gear. On smaller tours, they will rent a lot of the gear, like amps and all the heavy stuff. Um, and they'll rent it in each town that you play. So you should have a backline list of gear that you prefer to use. And it's advisable to keep it common. Because most backline companies will have like the most common and popular brands. But if they don't, then you never know what you're going to get, especially when you're in Eastern Europe or Russia or, you know, South Africa, some of the places that don't have access to really obscure, you know, brands of gear. They'll have Fender and Ampeg, you know, or not even that sometimes, you know, I've had to, I've had to make the best of some really bad gear before, but you just do what you got to do. Watercolors is a smooth jazz channel on Sirius XM. Um, I believe it's channel 66. And I couldn't believe that Poughkeepsie, New York was the most obscure name that he could think of when, you know, talking about backline stuff. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say that throughout my life. And I've, uh, I've always noticed because I was born at Vassar Hospital in Poughkeepsie, New York. I'm a diaper, a star. Wow, you've made it to the end. 
I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams. Dreams.